Uh, Heavenly Father, Father, I pray for those who have come here to study your word so faithfully over the last months and, and even years. Father, thank you for them. Thank you for their interest and their dedication to your word and for their willingness to honor you through a life of discipleship in your word. I thank you, Father, for I know that you will take those who who are dedicated in that way and you will do mighty things with them to your glory and for the betterment of others in the family of God, Father, through gifts of the Spirit and through their knowledge and their maturing in the faith, Father, they will be men and women useful to you in growing others. We thank you, Father, that we might be counted among those who are blessed to receive this kind of instruction, this kind of preparation. Father, as well, I thank you for the church and for the leadership here, for the building, for all that we have that has been graciously provided so that we can conduct this study. Continue to hold us together, Father, in the Spirit to conduct and to lead and to study and to uh, reflect on your word in this way. And Father, tonight as the Spirit leads us, show us your word uh, in a new way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we heard in the section we studied last week out of this first part of Second Isaiah, the one that looks at God the Father, we saw him telling Israel that there would be a man who would come along delivering them from bondage, delivering them from the bondage they have in Babylon. But we also saw God the Father telling Israel long in advance of this actually happening, of course, that this person wouldn't be their Messiah and he wouldn't be a David or a Solomon, a king. He wouldn't be a Moses or a Joshua. In fact, he's not even going to be a Jew. He's going to be a Gentile. He's going to be a Gentile conqueror, Cyrus. And that fact, the fact that God would send someone to deliver the Jewish people who wasn't any of those other things, but in fact was a Gentile, was probably so offensive to the Jewish reader in Isaiah's day that God, through Isaiah, spends a considerable amount of time. We studied last week in this chapter, in in chapters 44 and 45, explaining the reality of his sovereignty. So as to demonstrate that God does what he wishes. That's what it means to be God. So that's what we studied a lot last week. What follows in the last part of this opening section of 2nd Isaiah, the last part of the God the Father emphasis, is going to now be more of a a boost of confidence to the Israelite. So he finishes this section boosting their confidence in God and in his plan for them. And he begins tonight in chapter 45, verse 14, emphasizing that he is a deliverer of them, stronger than their idols, righteous in his delivery. So it's a theme we've heard before. That's part of the reason why we'll move faster tonight. But there are some new things, as you would expect. We'll cover those as we come to them. So verse 14 begins, Thus says the Lord, The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you. They will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will put to shame, they will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. You have the Egyptians, Ethiopians, and the Sabaeans. Sabaeans are from modern-day northern Egypt as well. They're all enemies of Israel. They're representative. 
that this, this verse isn't saying that these three and only these three will treat Israel with respect in a future day. They're representative of Israel's enemies. But he says in a future day, these people, these Gentile nations, will be subject to Israel. Whereas in the day this was written, it, that was not true. In fact, in many ways, it was the opposite. So is Isaiah writing in his day, looking at the circumstances of Israel amidst other nations, other nations that threaten them, tells the people of Israel, hey, one day God is going to make all these other nations come and bow down to you. When do we know that happens? The millennial kingdom. We've studied this. God describes this reverse role with Israel now on top and all the other Gentile nations coming and giving them glory, supplication here, honor, in other words. And in a sense, when he says God hid himself in verse 15, Isaiah is saying that God hid himself during this present time when he wrote the words because it's only that later he will emerge in the future to put Gentiles to shame or saying it a different way. God has chosen that for a time Israel will not be on the top. They will be punished, if you will. They will be subjected to these outside forces because they deserve that kind of chastisement. But there will be a future day when God brings them to glory. So for the time being, it is as if God is hiding himself from Israel. But eventually they get their time of glory. So in light of that, he's going to call on Israel to have confidence in God. I love this thinking because it reemphasizes and, and reinforces what we talked about last week. You can see here proof of what we learned last week concerning the perspective problem that we have when we try to judge God. From the perspective, for example, from the perspective of a Jew who was in captivity in Babylon, is God good? But from the perspective of the Jew who lives in the millennium, is God good? There can only be one answer to that question. He can't be both good and bad. So which one is he? In other words, your perspective is not a fair standing from which to make that conclusion. Because if you happen to be the Jew who's in Babylon under captivity, your circumstances are certainly not good. You're not happy. It's a devastating thing. But is that the measure of God's goodness? His statement through Isaiah here is, right now it's as if I'm hiding myself from you. But confidence in me requires that you look at me from an eternal point of view. And in eternal terms, Israel will have their day of glory and I will make sure it takes place and I will be their God and so on and so forth. But as we've used the example of the, the lake in the past in this class, the lake one day has a certain set of molecules. Maybe that's the day the storm hits the lake and it's stirred up and it's troubled and it's a difficult day if you're one of those molecules in the lake on that day. Then next year, it's a different set of molecules in that lake and it's a calm day. Both times, it's the same lake. When God spoke to Israel and said, I'm going to do these things to you and then these bad things are going to happen and here's what you're required to do if you want to please me and so on. He was speaking about a nation, not to an individual person. And depending on when you happen to be born and live, you may be the person who encounters the storm. You may be the person who encounters the calm day. But that doesn't give anyone the opportunity from their point of view to judge whether God is good or not. The judgment must be on with respect to what he does for the lake in general, overall. Not what happens to any given individual. God is dealing with Israel throughout history. And while the people who make it up will vary over the course of that history, from God's point of view, it's always the same Israel. It's always the same lake. And so he is good to Israel and he shows goodness fully in the end, just as he's promised to do. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. 
He did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? It is I. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow. Every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. All right, let's put aside verse 18 in that passage for just a moment, because we're going to come back to it and look at it. Let's look from verse 19 onward first. In 19 and onward, he declares... That, among other things, his words have not been kept secret. He has told them what they have to do if they're going to remain in his pleasure. He has told them what would happen to them if they didn't do what they're supposed to do. Now, I'm referring here in part to things like the law. The law spoken through Moses explained what God's expectations were. It gave consequences if they didn't do what God asked them to do. He told them through the prophets that followed that they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So even after he said, here's what you are to do, and here's what will happen if you don't, then he sent men later who said, okay, guys, you're not doing what he told them to do. Here's what's going to happen. Warning after warning, on and on. That's the point of what he says in verse 19. I haven't spoken in secret. He told them there'd be coming punishments. And now through Isaiah, he is telling them there's going to be future redemption. That though those punishments are about to come upon them, now he's even looking past those, and he's saying there'll be a future day of glory and redemption. Everything's been declared. Nothing secret. Can't say you didn't know. Ignorance is no excuse. So in verse 20, God says, what did your idols do for you? None of them could save you, but God will save you. God will save Israel. And his word applies, he says, to the entire earth. It has gone forth. It's not going to come back unfulfilled. God's word is so sure that there is nothing that can stop it from accomplishing his will. So no matter how outlandish something sounds, how impossible it may seem from your point of view today. He says, just look at the past if you need a little bolstering in your confidence for what's going to happen in the future. If he can say so precisely, things like Cyrus coming and and many other things that have been proclaimed along the way, and we see them play out perfectly. Just think about all the prophecies about Christ himself that were detailed, you know, intricate things about where he would be born and what would happen to him when he died and all the stuff in between. All that's been fulfilled, just like he said it would. If his word is that sure and has been so consistently, then looking at what we know about the future from this point forward, why should we not believe that every detail will come out exactly like he said it will? Now, that doesn't mean we understand it all, but we can still say, gosh, I can't wait to see that because I'll be able to understand it when I see it. Meanwhile, I trust it's going to happen. That's his request from Israel. That's what he's expecting from them. And in the end, every tongue will confess. There's no such thing as unbelievers. There's just not yet believers. 
Because every day, everyone at some point will know and believe and confess. The problem is if you don't know that before you die, you don't get any credit for it. It doesn't buy you anything, so to speak. But everyone will know and everyone will confess one day. No one goes into eternity ignorant as to who the Lord is. It's just a matter of when they know. So in verse 18, Isaiah records, as we go back to the top now, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Isaiah says God didn't create the earth as a wasteland. He says instead it was created as a place to be inhabited. Now why is that perhaps a bit controversial? Well, it has to do with the word wasteland. The word there in Hebrew is tohu. Now if you know anything about Genesis 1, and I'm thinking specifically of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The state of existence of the, of the early creation was formless and void. Formless and void. Formless is tohu, void is bohu, and there's a, an intentional alliteration there in the Hebrew, but the two together indicate a kind of, as the English suggests, chaos, formless matter. And if we understand creation, perhaps seeing these words and knowing the physics of how God created, of, of, of what God put in place in the creation, perhaps we could argue this is energy and matter before it's actually been formed into recognizable elements. Just formless matter and energy, perhaps. That's one way to look at what he's describing here. But Isaiah says, that's not how the Lord formed the earth. Or perhaps that's what he's saying. That's how some have come to view these verses. In verse, Genesis 1, verse 2, we're said that the earth appeared before the first day of creation as a formless void of energy and matter, a wasteland. The word for formless, remember, is the same Hebrew word as the one that's being translated wasteland in this book of Isaiah. It's tohu. So to use the Hebrew word, Genesis 1-2 says God created the heavens and the earth and it was tohu. And Isaiah says God created the heavens and the earth and he did not create it tohu. Well, wait a minute. Which one is true? What's, what is Isaiah saying about the early creation? This is where the gap theory originates. Now, if that's a word or a term you haven't heard, uh, I'll be introducing it to you tonight as well as explaining how it fits in the text. But if you have heard it, then you know already what I'm referring to, the, the theory that says that verse 1 describes God's initial creation, that then at some point after verse 1, something happens. And the thing that happened put the world back into a state of chaos, and that's verse 2. And from verse 2 onward, God restores creation after that period of chaos. So the gap theory is describes a gap of time, an unknowable period of time that seems to exist between verse 1 of Genesis 1 and verse 2. And if that's what Isaiah is suggesting here, then it kind of puzzles people. Well, Isaiah would be saying that verse 1 of Genesis 1 describes how God created the world. Not formless, not tohu, perfect. Then something happened that's not described in Genesis. And then by verse 2, we're back to tohu again. So what caused the earth and all of creation to go from what it started like in verse 1 into something that now had to be corrected, if you will, or refashioned from verse 2 onward? 
that's how people have come to, in some cases, to believe in a gap theory. They look at places like this verse in Isaiah and they say, well, Isaiah is telling us that we shouldn't go back into Genesis and assume that when God initiated the creation from the very first, that he started with a formless wasteland and then slowly presented it more and more into the form we know today. But in fact, he started with it not formless, something different. But then it fell into a formless state, a chaotic state. Well, I'm going to try to take you through how that argument is made, and then we'll come to a conclusion as best I can at the end. But consider these points. For example, God uses water as a picture of judgment in Scripture consistently, a picture of both sin and judgment for sin and of death. Easy examples that we can list come to mind, right? Noah's day, the flood, the, the, the covering of the entire surface of the earth with water was a picture of God's judgment. The Hebrew word for the depths of the sea is the same word that we use for hell in both Hebrew and in Greek. It's the same word for abyss in Greek, abusus. And in other words, God uses the idea of the deep dark of the sea as a metaphor or a picture for hell, for being cast into darkness under judgment. So when we look there at the beginning of the description of the earth and we see that it's covered in waters, formless waters, that seems to support the thought that the world has gone through some kind of period of judgment, one that occurred outside the text of Genesis. But then that required that God take the next steps of day one, two, three, four, and so on to reform an earth after a period of some kind of judgment. The proponents of this theory would also point to the new heavens and new earth out of, Genesis, out of uh, Revelation 21 and 22, in which there are no seas any longer in that environment because there's no sin. There's no need for the picture of judgment in a world where there's no longer sin that requires judgment. So the sin of the world is removed and therefore all the metaphors for it are also removed. Their point being that why, what are we to make of the beginning when you see it described as a creation covered in waters? It seems interesting that God would already have judgment pictured even before he starts day one of creation. They point to one other piece of evidence. They go to Ezekiel, uh, chapter 28, which you may remember is the oracle against the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre. And so the first part, the first half of chapter 28, talks to that real-life historical man, the, the, the prince, as he's called, the prince of Tyre. But by, you, by the time you get to verse 12 or so of that chapter, things change in a dramatic way. We're no longer talking about the prince of Tyre, the man who ruled the city in Phoenicia. We suddenly start talking about the king of Tyre, a different person than the prince. Listen to what chapter 28 of Ezekiel says, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, 
You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, and therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you, and you have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. Who's he talking about? It's got to be talking about Satan. There's several internal pieces of data that would tell us that. He's a cherub. He's an angel. He was the most splendid and beautiful of the angels. That's consistent with our understanding of who Satan was. He was in the, in the garden in Eden. Well, there's only three that we know of besides God. <laughs> he wasn't Adam. He's not talking about Eve. He's got to be talking about Satan. And so in the course of describing this, this creature's experience, we hear of the fact that at one point there was no unrighteousness in him. He was blameless. And he was beautiful and he was there as a covering cherub, the chief cherub, in other words, He lived in a place that was covered with precious stones, so much so that the light of God, in some sense, made the stones reflect that light in a way that he calls them stones of fire. So God's initial form of creation, it would seem, for the time that, that Satan was yet from fallen, not yet fallen, was a time in which the creation didn't appear like we see it today. It had precious stones as its covering and They glowed in the light of, of not the sun necessarily, but of God himself and his glory and created this kind of fire of stones. And and in all of this perfection, the enemy's pride was inflamed. And as you see, the story goes on. He sins. And so God brings him down from that position of honor. So if we understand this accurately as a, a description of Satan's fall, it doesn't tell us when, doesn't give us really any other circumstances around it except that it happened. The gap theorists would say this is what caused Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 to lead to chapter 1 verse 2. That between 1 and 2 is where this occurred. So in verse 1 you see God created the heavens and the earth, period. This was a part of that creation. But then the fall of Satan required that God bring judgment upon this earth. So all of these fancy stones and everything that made up the earth, they were disrupted by the waters. And perhaps that's why they're in the ground today, who knows. And then into chapter 1, verse 2, now you have God saying, let's turn this back into a place of formed creation that I can use for uh, man. Now, that's all theory, right? Scripture doesn't draw us those dots, doesn't pull those dots together for us. We have to make a lot of assumptions. We have to pull these verses out and kind of line them up and explain them in the way I just did. Arguments against the gap theory abound as well. First, I would say you could point to Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, not as two independent moments, not as if they were a sequence in that sense, one thing and then another thing. But instead, it's simply that verse 1 is an introduction of sorts to what is following in the chapter as a whole. Let me tell you how God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, read it like that and you're not seeing it the same way now. You're not seeing it as two two moments that are separated by time. You're seeing it more in literary terms as an introductive or topical statement followed by the chapter. From that interpretation, if we took that view of Genesis 1, how would I understand Isaiah 45.18? When Isaiah says in 45.18 that he did not create the world a waste place, how am I going to understand that? Well, simply as a reminder to the reader that God didn't stop there. That verse 2 wasn't the end of the story, it was the beginning of the story. 
that God intended as he started creation to move forward into a point where there was a perfect inhabitable world. And so his point is in reminding men and women, the ones who read this verse in Isaiah, the point of it then becomes, remember, God didn't put together a world that was for no purpose, formless and waste, a waste place. He had a point. He had a purpose. And the purpose in creating it was to make it inhabitable so there'd be people on it. His point is to suggest there is rational reason behind everything God is doing and he has a plan and he's carrying it out. Now, finally, there's some internal contradictions in the gap theory, one that I think is actually pretty condemning. You remember in Ezekiel 28? Now, remember, according to the gap theorist, Ezekiel 28 describes a period of human history or rather of Earth's history that falls when in the story of Genesis? When would the gap theorist put Ezekiel 28? They put it between verse 1 and verse 2, right? In terms of time. But in Ezekiel 28, what is discussed? Ezekiel 28 says that Satan was placed where? Eden, in the garden. When does the Garden of Eden get created? Day 6, according to Genesis 1. Remember, Genesis 2 is the chapter in which we hear of the garden, but all of Genesis 2 is day 6. So when you read the Genesis story, you get days 1 through 6 in chapter 1, then chapter 2 tells you a little bit at the top about day 7, and then the rest of it is about an expansion, a detailed discussion of day 6. Well, if the Garden of Eden wasn't created until day 6, then how was he walking around in the Garden of Eden between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1? Did he have a Garden of Eden for him and then he created a second one for Adam? Maybe. That would be the way you'd have to explain it if you still held to the gap theory. First of all, I don't think it's the natural reading and I don't think it's the the simplest reading, which is usually the best choice. I think it's what I said earlier. I think Isaiah is simply pointing out that the creation was never intended to be formless. It was always intended to continue forward to a final product so that it could support men. And that in itself is a lesson about sovereignty, about purpose, that God has a purpose intended for men as he created the world. I wanted to cover that, though, because you may hear that at some point in a future study. Someone may point to this verse or to Ezekiel 28 and try to address the gap theory. By the way, if someone were to hold to the gap theory, that in and of itself doesn't somehow create a tremendous theological problem. It's not like it's a theory that does violence to the Bible as a whole. Uh, I just think it's unnecessary, and I don't think it's supported by the text. Now, going from there, God ends the section here of the Father with a series of pronouncements. So from this point forward to the end of chapter 48, basically, there is a back and forth series of pronouncements. He's judging Babylon. So there's statements to judge Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, followed by reminders to Israel that they can rely and trust on God. And he'll keep moving back and forth between these. Haven't we already studied judgment against Babylon? Going way, way back, right? When we were looking at the oracles against the nations. So Babylon comes back to the foreground here. When we looked at the judgment against Babylon during the oracles, you remember how the oracles all played out? There was always a near-term fulfillment for the nation as it existed in Isaiah's day or soon thereabout. Then there was always a far-term fulfillment for how God was going to bring these nations down in the end in tribulation and, and even into the millennial kingdom, right? Every one nation we looked at, we saw both, but for one nation. One nation, we only saw one of the two. We didn't see both the near-term and the far-term fulfillment. We only saw the far-term fulfillment for Babylon when, when, it, when it was discussed back in 
the earlier chapters of Isaiah. We never heard him say what's going to happen to the near-term Babylon, the Nebuchadnezzar Babylon. Well, that's been waiting until now. So here in chapters 46 and onward, we hear him talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he does it off and on, mixed in with some other stuff. Verse 1 and 2, for example, is where we hear in that uh, first here of Babylon being judged. He says, Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Bel and Nebo, these were idols of Babylon. In fact, Bel is actually Bel Marduk, is the full name of that idol. Bel Marduk, which later became the god Jupiter for the Romans. So as the Romans invaded and took over this part of the world and adopted some of the cultural elements and, and worship, worship elements, this god made its way into their pantheon and became Jupiter. Now, Nebo was the son of Belmarduk in Babylonian idol worship. And so Nebo later becomes Mercury, who is the son of Jupiter in the Roman pantheon. Looking at them in their Babylonian form, Isaiah says they are burdens to be carried around by beasts and they've stooped over. Israel went into Babylon under captivity. The Babylonians had these gods and Israel uh, adopted them as their own gods, at least those who were involved in idol worship. When Cyrus showed up and came in and defeated the Babylonians, Cyrus takes these objects made of gold and silver and he puts them on carts with beasts to carry them out as spoil from the war. And of course, they're lying down in the cart, right? They're all pitched over and lying down. They're stacked up like, you know, like any booty from war. And the description he's giving here is your gods, your gods got carried off by beasts lying down, stooped over. They had no power, in other words. They were shown to be what they are, idols and nothing more. So the image he leaves you with is idols so weak they have to be carried away. Now contrast that in verse 3. He says, now, talking about himself, he says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. You see the contrast? Their false gods had to be carried away, whereas their real God carried them. Drawing that contrast. And then he says in verse 4, Even to your old age I will be the same, and even to your graying years I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, and indeed they worship it. They lift it upon their shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver them from his, from his stress. doesn't need a lot of explanation, right? This is a theme he's said many times. So Israel's carried by their God, but he makes the promise here, I'm not going to stop. I think this is very parental. What, the, what God's saying is, I brought you into the world, I bore you. And he did. He brought his firstborn Israel into the world by electing Israel through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I've carried you all this way. I'm going to continue to carry you. Despite your disobedience, despite all that you do wrong, I'm not going to give up on you. So the faithfulness of God transcends the faithlessness of his people. So that's his message to them. And we know that the effect of his bringing them into Babylon and then carrying them out later is to have them leave behind idol worship. 
Now think about this. This is written 150 years before they were brought out. At least 150 years before that. So these words are being recorded before they're even in captivity. And he's telling them they're going to come out of captivity. I wonder if for the nation that was actually the ones to go through the captivity period itself, when they were there and they had these words and they could read them, and as they're being freed by a man, Cyrus, who was prophesied in their own word, and they see themselves as products of all that prophecy playing out in their life, and they start to walk back with Zerubbabel to Israel, I wonder if they're reading these words thinking to themselves, maybe we should cut out this idol worship stuff because, number one, God's obviously God. He's able to tell us about all these events in, in detail. And number two, he says we went through all of this because of our idol worship. Maybe we ought to put two and two together. However he did it, through his spirit, it had that effect. Never again did they worship idols as a nation. So God says it, it's true, and the effect it has on the people who see it as such is that it changes them. Verse 8, remember this, he says, and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn minded who are far from righteousness. I bring my I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. So God says, trust my word by reflecting on my past. People do that today in different ways. Uh, Diaries, you know, um, devotionals of some kind. uh, Just the fact that they can think back in their own experience. But this would seem to suggest that's God's desire that we would do that. That it be a part of our regular practice, perhaps in, in, in a prayerful, meditative kind of way, to think through on a regular basis, well, there was that circumstance, and he got me through it, and then there was that, and then, then there was that, and as I think back along all of those circumstances, it's not to say everything always turned out perfect, but in watching God at work and remembering it, you're so much better equipped to think about what might come tomorrow and live through it with a hopeful and, and faithful point of view. If chapter 46 was the end of the idolatry of Babylon, within the nation of Israel. 47 then talks about the end of the empire itself. Babylon as a nation had two principal effects in its day, in Nebuchadnezzar's day. They were a source for a lot of idolatry and that influenced the nation of Israel. Secondly, they were a crushing political nation in their day. They they were a force in the world. They were the greatest power in their day. So they were an army and a nation of might They were also a source of idolatry and sorcery and other um, false religious views, false religious sources. God has announced in the first, in chapter 46, that those religious sources of power are going to be put aside. In chapter 47, he's going to describe the end of the political or of of the nation itself. Does that strike any bells? Do you remember a similar pattern in scripture elsewhere, specifically regarding Babylon? Well, if you know Revelation, Revelation has two chapters dedicated to Babylon near the end, chapters 17 and chapters 18. They describe events that come near the very end of tribulation. And with two chapters devoted to uh, Babylon, it's interesting. The first chapter addresses spiritual Babylon, the ending of idols and spiritually the, the effect of Babylon spiritually on the world. 
as it, it, it kind of embodies the enemy and all his efforts at false religion. And chapter 18, the second chapter, addresses the physical fall of the nation itself, the Antichrist's armies, the Antichrist's power in the form of the, the world nation or the world power of Babylon. It's the same pattern here. First the spiritual, then the nation itself, separating the two. It seems as though God is using Babylon as a picture here that's pretty complex to describe his plan against the enemy, against Satan himself. So Babylon's use here in Scripture is as a picture of Satan and his effect on the world. It's not merely a picture because it has a literal reality, but God wants us to understand how it has a more subtle secondary meaning as well, and he puts them both to work here. So look at 47. Look at how 47 describes the fall of the nation. Verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughters of the Chaldeans, for you will no longer be called the Queen of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made the yoke very heavy. Yet you said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. Now then, hear this, you sensual one who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I will not sit as a widow nor no loss of children. But these two things will come on you suddenly in one day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come on you in full measure. In spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells, you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge They have deluded you, for you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil will come on you, which you will not know how to charm away, and disaster will fall on you, for which you cannot atone, and destruction, about which you do not know, will come on you suddenly. Stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may cause trembling. You are wearied from your many counsels, Now, let the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars, those who predict by the new moons, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor a fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. Quick question. Did you see any parallels there from the chapters I mentioned in Revelation? You might have noticed there's an awful lot of similarity in the imagery. Furthermore, there's even some similarity in imagery with a chapter I read a little earlier tonight from Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me explain what I mean. You're going to see in this chapter images that teach us a lot about how God wants us to understand Babylon as a picture or as a symbol And we're going to look at the details of those images so that we can make sense of what the symbol or imagery is that God wants us to understand about Babylon. Now, remember, I'm not in some way uh, minimizing or denying 
the reality of a true Babylon, of the nation that existed in Isaiah's time or, or shortly after Isaiah, the one that Nebuchadnezzar led, that's a true Babylon. Similarly, in the time of the Antichrist, in the last days of tribulation, there will be a world power, a power that consumes the whole world, that is called Babylon. And without anything more specific to go on, we're, we're only left to assume it's the same locale, it's the same general region of the world, a Middle Eastern seat of power, in the current day Iraq, where, where Babylon is, that becomes so powerful that the whole world is ruled out of that location by the Antichrist himself. So Babylon is a real place, but God has allowed it to be so. He has allowed Babylon to rise to power when he's wanted it so that it becomes that picture for him. And here's what the picture is intended to convey. If we compare this chapter we just read with the ones that are in 17 and 18 in Revelation, it becomes utterly apparent what he's trying to convey with the sense of what Babylon is or who Babylon should be. First, notice that this nation is described as a woman. We haven't seen that before, have we? Do you remember any example other than Israel herself in which a Gentile nation has been called a woman so specifically? There's none that I know of. This nation, he wants you to perceive her as woman. And of course, there's plenty of descriptions about her here and the way she was you know, beautiful and said these things and thought these things and so on. And then he talks in negative terms about what he's going to do to her, taking her skirt off. In other words, taking her from a position of, of honor and royalty and making her a, a, a poor slave girl working in the, in the field. So he wants you to understand she's a woman. She thinks herself beautiful. She thinks herself so powerful that she's the only one. And notice that in the description, her clothing even is a way of measuring her beauty. In the negative sense, really, here. But still, her beauty is associated with her clothing. Now, let's start drawing comparisons to the chapters I mentioned in Revelation. What's, the chief, what's one of the chief characters mentioned, particularly in chapter 17, the one that deals with the spiritual Babylon? The woman, the harlot. The woman who rides the beast. She is called Babylon, the mother of harlots. Babylon is a woman in, verse, in chapter 17 of Revelation. She's marked by a beautiful appearance, particularly her clothing. She is in fine clothes, but later she is found in chapter 17, verse 16 of Revelation. Later in that chapter, her appearance changes from one of fine clothing to this. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot, will make her desolate and naked, and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Now, chapter 17 is talking about spiritual Babylon. Meaning the world, the effect of a false religion that the enemy himself propagates on the world to, to delude the world and bring them into uh, worship of himself rather than of God. It's really just the final form, the final ultimate form that Satan's influence reaches. He's doing the same thing today. The harlot exists today. In fact, if you go back and look at the description of her in Revelation 17, the harlot is essentially false religion in any form, which the enemy is using to delude those who would follow that instead of God. And it rides the beast. The beast is the Antichrist, is Satan's influence through the Antichrist. She rides on top of him. The political power of the world props up the false religion of the world, the enemy working through both to create many different structures, many different influences throughout the world to delude men into thinking there's many ways to God or there's there's no way to God or whatever it is that he would put in their way so they wouldn't know the true way. So the beast is the enemy 
in the last days working through the Antichrist. The harlot is a prostitute. What is a prostitute? One who gives you the appearance of something real, but none of the truth of it. A harlot is someone who gives you what a, a true marriage is supposed to provide, but it's a dirty imitation of that. He's describing the, har- the woman as a harlot to make the point that when we are wedded to these false religions, it gives the appearance of truth with none of the substance. It's a cheap, immoral uh, counterfeit of the real thing. That's why the spiritual Babylon is a, a picture, and a, the, the poster child for false religion, false faith. Where did false religion begin according to Genesis? What's the first instance of somebody doing something to oppose God in human form? The Tower of Babel. Babylon. Babel. The mother of all harlots. The place where it all began in Babel and has spread the world from there. Babylon is the beginning and it will become the moment or the place where God will bring all things to an end as well in that regard. So it's geographically tied because God has chosen to use that moment, that place on earth as his geographical center for this picture. It is tied by the name of the nation and it is tied by Satan's activity. He was in Mesopotamia. He was in that place in the world originally when he caused the fall in the garden. So God is keeping it localized so that we make a clear connection. So it's a woman in both Isaiah and it's a woman in chapter 17 of Revelation. Notice the next thing, the pride the number one, the references here to pride, her pride in Isaiah is her downfall. I am alone. There is no one besides me. And he says, yeah, but you forget. The only reason you had power over my nation to begin with was because I put them in your hands. You're forgetting this is all by my hand. I, I'm the one who's allowing you to do this, God is telling them. And you suddenly decided it's all you. Does that strike any bells? Do we know of any other time in history when somebody was elevated by God to some position of honor and power and in their pride decided it was all about them and forgot it was all from God? Well, among other examples, the chief one is, of course, the one we studied in Ezekiel 28, Satan. In other words, this woman who is Babylon the nation is also emblematic of Satan himself, who is the one behind Babylon, who is the the chief enemy behind the world religions that are that are embodied in the thought of of spiritual Babylon. His pride, his attempts to be the only one led to his downfall. It was also, by the way, his appearance which caused his downfall. Similar to the way this woman's nice appearance is described as a part of how Babylon itself became too prideful. Third connection. Notice the references to the occult in this passage of Isaiah in chapter 47. He says in several places, do your sorcery, Cast your spells, but it's not going to help you. Why does he keep mentioning that? Sorcery and spells. Well, here again, historically, we know that Babylon was a center for the dark arts. Historically, they were a nation that pioneered the occult, which goes well back in time from the time of Isaiah, of course. It had its origins, again, ultimately at the Tower of Babel. Many believe the Tower of Babel was actually a ziggurat, which is a uh, if you think of it uh, like, a, like a pyramid with stair steps like you see in Mexico. Maybe right, maybe wrong, we don't know. But the point of that kind of a structure or any structure that's risen to a tall point like that usually culminates in some kind of worship activity involved. Something at the top, a sacrifice at the top. Some, that's how those temples or those, those structures were often thought to be used in antiquity as a form or source of, of, of worship. That would make perfect sense historically. When we consider what God did to scatter men, he says, if they can build this and start worshiping themselves or God or the enemy, then all is lost in this in this effort. So he scatters them, causes them not to have the ability to confer in language. 
it's, it's like, I think of it like a nuclear reaction. The way we keep a nuclear reaction from going critical and exploding in a power plant is we put control rods down. We, we put these barriers into the, into the core that prevent the reaction from going as fast as it would like. I think of the Tower of Babel as one of those moments when God said, I need to put some control rods down into the heat of this so that I can slow down the reaction and keep them from killing themselves before my son shows up to save them. That's my thought of it anyway. So if the, the occult is a dominant feature within Babylon historically, and now it's being pictured here as well with Isaiah's description, we go forward, of course, into the time of Revelation, and we know that the occult is all dominant in that day. The Antichrist is Satan indwelt. And so you have the occult, the, the dark arts of Satan, in the foreground of mankind's day in the time of tribulation. What this chapter in Isaiah, compared to the one in, in Revelation, what that suggests is Babylon is the Bible's creation so that we would have a clear understanding of who Satan is, how he operates and thinks, and how he works within creation to cause the downfall of men and the deception and the delusion of men even through to today. And rather than call it Satan, so to speak, or Satan's work, he calls it Babylon, the mother of all harlots, who rides on a beast, who is empowered by this behind-the-scenes force, and who deludes and deceives the nations. And then God, at points in history, has localized it to a physical nation and used it in judgment against his people, at a, at, at a time in the past, in Isaiah's day. And as we know, he'll do it again. In the time of tribulation, it is again a, a, a useful tool for God to point direct against the nation of Israel as judgment, as punishment, if you will, as discipline against them. But in neither case did he use it to their destruction. And that's the, the thing that God keeps reinforcing to temper the message in these chapters we've been reading. God decides to ultimately judge Babylon, as he says here, because of what they did in sin against the nation of Israel. Now, isn't this an interesting demonstration of what sovereignty allows? God can say to Babylon, I've raised you up and handed my people into your hands so that you can do what I want you to do to them in chastising them. But then when you're done, I'm going to judge you for being mean to my people. How can he do both? Well, it's the difference between being the author of sin and one who puts it to good work. God didn't create their sin. He let them do as their sin nature would naturally do. He just put it to work. But having put it to work is not the same thing as absolving it. They did what they were naturally prone to do. He put it to work in, in making good out of it for the sake of his nation. But then when all is said and done, they still have sin. They still deserve judgment for sin. It's not as though the fact that he could put it to good use somehow made them innocent of that sin. It challenges us if we assume that because God got involved, he suddenly is no longer in a position to judge them. That's a false conclusion. And if you think it through, you'll realize that's not a, an accurate or fair way to conclude how God must choose to act in that situation. Finally, in chapter 48. Chapter 48 is a summary of the entire first section of Second Isaiah. So from 40 to 48, that section is summarized in chapter 48. So 48 is part of the section, but it's the summary of the section. So it begins with a review of his sovereignty, particularly the fact that he could pronounce future events and bring them about the way he intended. That's included in here. And there's some other things, too. And we're going to stop at the, at the midway point because next week, the second part of this chapter in summarizing the, the first section naturally transitions into a discussion of what comes in the second section. So we're going to use it as a as a transition, as a introduction to the second section. And for hopefully those of you who 
who remember this, the second section of Second Isaiah covers what? The son and the term we use is suffering servant. The suffering servant. So look at this chapter 48, verses 1 through 11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declared the former things long ago and they went forth from my mouth and I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead bronze. Those are not compliments, by the way. (laughs) Therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say my idol has done them and my graven image and my molten image have commanded them. You have heard, look at all this, and you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago, and before today you have not heard them, so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago your ear has been not has not been opened because I knew that you would deal very treacherously and you have been called a rebel from birth for the sake of my name I delay my wrath and for my praise I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another think about this as we leave tonight The second half of Isaiah is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's really a book of redemption, right? The second part of Isaiah. If if we match it back to the Bible in some sense, if the first part of Isaiah is the Old Testament, that's really setting up the problem. In the Bible, you could say the same thing about the Old Testament in some ways. Setting up the problem and the need for a solution. The Bible's division into the New Testament then presents the solution and the need for it and the way it's, a, it's provided. Isaiah does a similar thing. The, the first part of his book is the problem in a sense, and the second part is how the solution is being brought. If that's a true way to consider its form, its, its division then, what are we saying then about the fact that the, the solution involves the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in these three parts of Second Isaiah? Some, I think, in many cases, Christians today would be prone to think if I had set up this structure for them in advance and said, "Okay, here's how Isaiah is laid out. Problem, solution. And then in the solution part, it it becomes pictures of the Godhead. And I just said, well, what do you think the second part of Isaiah is all about? I wouldn't be surprised if many Christians said, well, it must all be about Jesus. And in some sense, that's a good way to look at it. He is the solution. But. The fact that Isaiah is not set up that way, but includes all three of the Godhead, tells us that the solution required all three. And the easiest way I can explain to you how the three are involved is to remember that the Great Commission in Matthew 28 says that when you baptize someone, you're to baptize them in what? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why are we to name all three when we baptize somebody? For the same reason that I think all three are captured in the second Isaiah. Because salvation doesn't begin with the Son. For you or for I begins with the father who chose us before the foundations of the world. If the father hadn't made us part of the plan, the son would never have died for us in that sense. His death wouldn't have been for us. It would have been for the ones he chose instead of us. So the father's elective choice in bringing us into the faith is the initial part of the process. That's why Christ can say in chapter six of John, all that the father give me, I will keep all of them and lose none. It started with the father giving him somebody. 
And then, secondly, the Son has to be involved for the really obvious reasons that we probably know well. The atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the opportunity to be saved, to be in the, in the grace of God. That's why, by the way, the second part of uh, the second section here of Second Isaiah is not called the conquering king. It's not called the teaching prophet. It's called the suffering servant because it's the death of Christ that becomes the preeminent feature for his contribution to the problem, to, to solving the problem. Think of it how Isaiah has played it out already. The father's role in salvation is the, the sovereign elective choice. And look at all of what we've studied in this first section. It's all about the father's sovereignty, about his dictating of events of history, of being in control, making decisions and setting it forth. I declared it. It will take place. So that even the sense of it conveys that role in the Godhead with regard to salvation, with regard to the solution. We could expect a similar focus then, a, con- a commensurate focus then for the Son. It will be on the suffering servant, the need to be obedient to the cross, because that's his role. Last step, what's the servant's, or what's the uh, likely uh, thing we should expect when we get to the Holy Spirit's peace? When we baptize in his name, we're including him because what is his role in the salvation process? The quickening of the heart, we say. He's the mechanism in which faith is united in the heart so that this salvation opportunity is made ours individually. Well, if the, if the role of the, of the Holy Spirit is the, he's the action button, he's the catalyst, he's the, he's the ingredient that makes the, the engine start, well, what do you think the descriptions of the Holy Spirit are going to be in his part of Second Isaiah? Remember, with respect to Israel, because the whole book is focused on them specifically, mostly, well, it's going to be on how he quickens the nation. It's going to take us back into Zechariah 12 again, in a sense. It's going to take us back into how God, through the Holy Spirit, will waken the nation, call them into faith, bring them to an awareness of who their Messiah is so that they could be saved. It patterns itself in the same way that God works in general with each human being. And it shows itself in that way. So I'm, I'm sending you back into that thinking process so that when we come in next time and we deal with the second section and onward, you'll be in looking for those same things. The theme now is about the suffering servant, the death process, and why it was necessary. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for your complex and magnificent wisdom in the declaring of your word and in the preserving of it and in the delivery of it to us today. And sincerely, Father, thank you for that. For a life of faith, Father, is by the Spirit, but yet it is made so much stronger, Father, by an opportunity to learn more of you and to understand you in a new way and to see you at work in these ways. For, Father, if you can move a whole nation to and fro through the, through the quarters of history and, and get them to arrive at just the place they are to be on just the right day, then, Father, you can lead us out of here and to our homes tonight and in our walk through the rest of this week and get us to where we're supposed to be. And we can trust in that and we can rely on that and we can... Father, operate in the freedom to know that since you are on the throne, we don't have to sit there for you. We can listen and we can follow and we can be faithful in what you've given us and we can trust, Father, that you will bring it to good. And that is a comfort, Father, and that is a relief. And We thank you for that insight. We ask, Father, that in the weeks to come as we finish this study, we continue in our perseverance and our strength and in our eagerness to learn and you would reward that, Father, with continued clarity through the Spirit and bring us perhaps a few others if you would, because we enjoy sharing what we know. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.